0: In biblical ownership, radical stewardship, we're talking about um, uh, the idea of. Here we go. Biblical. We're talking about the idea of being a steward of the people God has entrusted to you and how that's supposed to look and what that's supposed to work, how that's supposed to work. And um, today I want to talk about the ultimate exemplar in that, and uh, we'll, we'll call it Jesus and the stewardship of glory. Jesus Christ and the stewardship of glory, and if you want to open your Bibles this morning to uh, John 17, this would be kind of the, the classic location to understand um, how to think about whatever God trusts entrusts to us. How to think about anything that God puts on our plate, how we should relate to it. John 17. We all know that that's the concluding prayer of the Upper Room discourse. John chapters 13 through 17. And um, I, I hope you understand how significant this portion of Scripture is. Um, it's a big Bible. Everybody see the big Bible? It's, um, there's lots of stuff in here. When you look at it, you might say, Oh, I can't do it today. I don't know what to do with that. Well, when, on a day like that, I would recommend go hit up John chapters 13 through 17. Go find something in there. Grab a paragraph and think through what he's saying. The reason that's so accessible is because It is a discourse. It's a teaching block, like a sermon. It's a record of a teaching block anyway. The, the speaker in my Bible, because of the way they printed this Bible, the speaker's quotes are all in red because it's Jesus speaking. It's one of Jesus' great long discourses in the Gospels. And here's the problem with the Gospels. They're narratives, and narratives are fairly tricky to interpret. What's the message the author saying through the story? is tough with a story because it's a story and it hits you in different ways and but there's a thing the author's doing and trying to identify that's it's a tricky thing but when you get to a discourse that's teaching that's logical reasoning connected thoughts that are presenting a thesis or a main idea and then leading out how that works and and in the didactic or teaching material, it's a lot clearer what the author is doing. That's what the epistles are. That's why we gravitate so much to the Apostle Paul and the general epistles, because they're argumentative letters that are teaching for their purpose through that method of of, of logical discourse. Now, they're hard. The epistles are challenging, but we have so many quotes that we grab that I can hold on to that thought because it's part of this teaching block, and so... The reason I say this is such a useful, accessible passage, John chapters 13 through 17, in the Upper Room Discourse, is because this teaching discourse is the seed of the teaching of the disciples that grow, grew into the epistles. And Paul wasn't present, but Paul echoes the themes that Jesus presents and introduces in John 17, uh, John John 13 through 17. And there's nothing else <clears throat> in the Gospels that's like it. It's, the, it's unique in the four Gospels. Every Gospel has uniqueness about it, but this is one of the places where John really stands out is this, this upper room discourse, this uh, last night of teaching um, for the Lord Jesus to uh, put out his platform for what the disciples would do with the Holy Spirit when the Spirit came. Here we are today, with the Holy Spirit in us and so the continuity between the epistles and the Gospels one of the great continuities is the upper room discourse the seed again that the that the letters grow uh, grew out of so so I love to study this with you and um, I am challenged by it there are past, there are things in there he says that I find challenging and I have to think about and um, and, and study out and say how does that what's he mean by that it's not it's not 100% easy but it is all very perspicuous. And in John chapter 17, at the conclusion of the instructions, that the summary would be a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I've loved you. That'd be the summary. And then the Holy Spirit would be the power uh, in whom you do that loving to the standard of Christ, which we, talk, we talked about last time. When you get to John 17, Jesus is not really talking to the disciples, but he is letting them hear what he's saying, and it is for their benefit. Jesus is giving us his model prayer um, on behalf of the disciples, and we call it the high priestly prayer where he prays to intercede on behalf of those that are following him. And so in this chapter-long prayer, you find yourself, church-age believers, who have believed because of the word of those that Jesus was directly dealing with In We are under the apostles, and we're here because they preached, and then they wrote. And then one untimely born preached and wrote named the apostle paul and and we're we're directly connected to the lord jesus through the apostles we're apostolic in that sense and so we do we do put our new testament in there with the with the hebrew scriptures don't we we think that the new testament is the bible is everybody with me on the new testament is word for word god's word well that's because it's apostolic it's from jesus through the apostles and the power of the holy spirit so what i'm saying is when you get to this prayer this exemplary prayer He's teaching not, he's not only praying to the Father. He is doing that and saying what he wants the Father to do, generally speaking. He's also glorifying the Father. He's also doing the things we do in prayer and thanking him, but he's asking for the things that he wants. And he's always asking, as we see in the patterns of Jesus' prayer, he asks in accordance with the Father's will. And what you see here is the question of property. What has been given to him and what will he do with it? When you surface that topic, what is his property, what has been given to him, and what will he do with it? you understand why we're calling this stewardship? Stewardship is the delegation of responsibility from a higher authority to a lower authority. I have all of the decisions to make, says God, and his sovereignty, and then he, in his sovereign and gracious wisdom, delegates down to us the capacity to make decisions. And in, in those decisions are our resources, what we do with our time, Your time is your time. It's all yours. God gave you the capacity to make choices for what you do with your time. What you have with your property, with your money, with all of your resources, which are far less valuable in my view than time, right? That's all delegated to you. What do we call it when someone is a good piano player? We say that's a gifted person. We say they're gifted, and we don't necessarily mean spiritual gifts, but we'll also say talented. Where'd that word talented come from? What a talented person. Um, uh, calligrapher. What a talented planner. Well, that comes from the parable of the talents that God, that's the culture. I'm sorry, here in the West, you're, you're from a Christian-oriented culture that has died. So, so we still talk about Bible things. I'm convinced talented comes from the, the parable of the talents God gave. The, the landowner gave so much money or talents And then the person had to do stewardship with them to read in Matthew 25. So what I'm saying is everything is delegated, everything, your life, you know, and you've got the capacity to make decisions about it. And it's on you. It's on us. God holds us accountable for the decisions that we make. And so in John 17, Jesus gives you the model. This is how to manage your resources. This is how to be a steward of what's been entrusted to you. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, this is John 17, 1, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son, so that, let me me paraphrase with you, glorify, bring glory to me, your Son, bring it, pour, oh God, is what he's saying, so that I may glorify you, so that the Son may bring glory to you even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. There's a delegation of even people the father has given to the son so that whoever the father gives to the son, the son gives them eternal life. Now that's soteriology. That's some deep theology he just said. Well, it should be. It's the father. I mean, it's the son of God speaking to the father of God. What is on his mind? It should, be, it should challenge us theologically. But he does. He says, everything, everyone you've given to him, the son, I've given him eternal life. Now, does that sound like glorifying the father to you? Does it sound like Jesus said in verse one, glorify me so that I can glorify you. In verse two, he said, everyone you've given me, I've given eternal life. Has he glorified the father with what he's been given? Is it glorifying to God, the father that Jesus has given them eternal life? It is, is, because of verse three, the only verse we remember. This is eternal life. What does he say? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, wait a second. Glorify me, the principle. Bring it, bring it, Lord. Pour, pour the blessing so that I have something to bless you with. That's the reciprocation he's talking about. This is the stewardship of glory. Bring me glory so I have something to glorify you with. I'm empty. I got nothing, Lord. Give me something so I can glorify you. Let's keep the. It's playing, I like to say, it's like playing pitch with your dad in the backyard. Throw me the ball so I can throw back. There's no game if you don't throw me the ball. That's what he's saying. Glorify the Son so that I can glorify you. And then he says, Everyone you've given to me, that's the Son being glorified, I've given them eternal life, which means that they know you. The only true God. So you gave them to me. I revealed you to them. You gave them to me. I revealed you to them. It's reciprocation in John 17. That's what he's talking about. You have to think about these things. Well, but pastor, I've already read down to verse 10 because you're just talking about verses one through three. And if you have and you've understood it, that is fantastic. But my challenge to you is if you don't tease these things out and think about them a little bit, you probably miss it. Glorify the son. That's pretty cheeky. To be asking God to glorify you, isn't it? No, that's what you're supposed to have. But what's it for? That's the problem. Luther talked about in his, uh, some of his best discourses, he talked about the theologian of the cross versus the theologian of glory. And in the days of the Reformation, to him, that was the difference. We are uh, to humble ourselves and be about God's work and that takes us to the cross Instead of seeking to glorify and magnify ourselves with our flowing robes and our magnificent processions and all the trimmings and trappings where people honor us, the, the theologians, the theologian of the cross he 's more like a, like a friar with a sackcloth than a, um, a, a man in great regalia with uh, everyone's um, glorifying him because of his accomplishments and So what Jesus is doing here when he says, bring it, Father, glorify me. This is an attitude that I believe we should adopt, but we need to adopt the whole attitude. Throw me the ball so I can throw it back. Glorify me so that I have something to glorify you with. You gave me the people you've given me. I gave them you. I showed them you, and that is to glorify the Father that they receive eternal life by knowing him, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And what's the summary of that work that he did? He hasn't said to that yet. He hasn't gone to the cross yet in, in these words. But he has, in a summary sense, and, and that will include this, he has done the work. What is the work that Jesus can say uh, something like two days before the cross, hours before the cross, what's the work that he's done? What has he done? Jesus has revealed the Father. He has shown the Father to those the Father gave him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. comes to the Father except through me. Show us the Father. It's enough. How long have I been with you that you don't know me? This was his mission to reveal the Father, and he's done it. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, in verse 5, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he has set aside his glory for his time of sojourn on earth in the first phase of the incarnation and he's asking for the second phase which he's in now and forevermore that he receive the glory that he always had so that the Son of Man will be glorified as he always has been from eternity past as also the Son of God. What I'm saying is not that he stopped being the Son of God to be the Son of Man. I'm saying that he added to being the Son of God from eternity past in the coming in the flesh of man, incarnation. He added his uh, humanity. So he became the Son of Man and forevermore will be. And while walking on earth, we did not behold him as someone that was, was dignified, glorified. He wasn't uh, in his glory. And the Mount of Transfiguration story, Matthew 17, shows you that there's a veiling of his glory. There's a setting aside or a veiling of what really is coming to him. And why? Why would he not dazzle us when he showed up and everybody can't help but say it's only Jesus? Look at the glorified one. Nobody's glorious like that. It's because the way we come to know the Father is not by having our eyes dazzled. It's by knowing him through these concepts and propositions. It's that righteousness demands righteousness. It's that God is glorified and awesome and righteous and we can begin to sort of conceive of what that's like. In contrast to us. And we can talk about him in, in negative words like infinite, immortal, invisible. We can talk about God in the negative words that we know what it is like to be finite. God, we don't know what it's like to be God. He's infinite. And so, so you have to go to these humans, by God's protocol, design, eternity, past, sovereign decree, you have to come down. He had to come down here and reveal the Father through these concepts, through these acts, through these words and works. And he's done it. He's done the work the Father sent him to do. So glorify me. This is the, the other thing. Now, where in the Bible would you find that the Father glorified the Son because he did the work the Father sent him to do? Do you know your Bible? You're got. guy. No, I'm not quizzing you, but for a Coke, uh, does anybody (laughs) does anybody know where you would um, where you would go to see the Father glorifying the Son, exalting the Son, and I don't know, giving him a name above every name because of the work that he had done. That there's a, it's almost like a recompense for the work rendered. The Son glorified the Father by humbling Himself in Philippians 2, all the way to the point of the death of the cross. For this reason also, also He was highly exalted and given a name. Who gave Him the name? The Father. Who gave Him a name, gave Him the fame, the glory, the honor that comes to Him as Jesus, and at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and tongue confess. See, this is the pattern, and it's everywhere when you think of Jesus as the pattern. You know, we talk about taking up our cross daily and following him. He says, if you don't take up your cross, you're not worthy of me. And he's talking about being a disciple and there is a, a, a willingness to suffer. Whatever the requirement is, it's a stewardship God has entrusted to us. There is the taking up of the cross, but you know, we're not walking through life like Jacob Marley. Sorry, still Christmas in my head, but uh, we're not walking through life carrying this burden of this cross through all eternity, right? You're suffering for him now and never again after this phase of of life you'll never suffer for his sake again he won't either suffer for our sake for righteousness sake for our salvation and so um, what we're saying here is that the the reciprocation Jesus is asking for is is programmed for you it's programmatic for your life Not that you want to exalt yourself and you want, God, expand my borders in the prayer of Jabez. Everybody has to have their prayer of Jabez book bag and Trapper Keeper and uh, Keychain and uh, Sneakers. Um, uh, The real popular book back 30 years ago and everybody started doing Christian swag. You go to the bookstore and get a a prayer of Jabez beer koozie or whatever. Uh, No, you couldn't get a koozie, but you could get all kinds of little swag for this book because we found this one little verse in Chronicles that talks about how... This man asked that God would uh, magnify him, expand his borders. And, um, and it's a wonderful verse, wonderful concept. And so the idea became, we're just not asking God for enough stuff. That's not what Wilkinson meant when he wrote it. But that's what, people, that's what resonates with people. That's why the health wealth thing is on the TV. That's why um, the, the best sellers, a lot of times, are people telling you that your best life is now. And, right and, 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 and you can be happy and prosperous and rich if you just love Jesus. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Because, see, you've got a budget. You have to take your resources and budget them. One guy likes to say that you need to have every dollar accounted for when you set up your budget, right? Well, your glory that God is going to give you has a purpose. It's already accounted for. You're going to do something with it. What will you do with all that riches of glory that you ask God to give you? What will you use it for? Well, I mean, mostly the Lord... I just want a little, you know, just, I mean, mostly, mostly, but, but no, I mean, there's some stuff I want. And so how much of that are you going to (laughs) waste? How much of that glory are you going to waste on you? Because we are not eternally significant unless God gives us eternal significance and our choices don't matter until God has an opinion about our choices. And we don't remember that we, we, we get in this mindset that we are God, that it's about us, that what's happening is me. But I think John 17, 1 through 5 is very powerful to recalibrate us for what the stuff is for. And on that, I'd like to to turn to Exodus 20, of course. Exodus 20 would be uh, the second book of the Bible. And can anyone remind me what is going on in Exodus 20 just off the top of your head? So Moses went down to the people and told them, and then God spoke all these words. I think he's talking to the whole nation. Uh, And 20 is divisible by two. Uh, Two into 20 is 10. Now, you can remember this. The second book of the Bible, that's your two. In chapter 20, that's your 20. If you take two into 20, you get 10 commandments. That's where the 10 commandments live in your Bible. But pastor... We're not under the Ten Commandments. Well, you're right. We are not covenantally bound as a national entity with the constitution of the Ten Commandments and the, and the, the rest of God's um, uh, law that he gives national Israel, at Mount Sinai. We're not that. But all Scripture, Paul says, talking about the Old Testament, is profitable to you and me. For teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And I think the righteousness of God on display in Exodus 20 is binding on us. And you might have heard it said that nine of ten of the commandments are restated and applied to the church in the New Testament. Nine of ten. Anybody know the one that's not restated? Sabbath. Yeah, y'all know very well. Sabbath. And here we are on, the, on not the Sabbath. We get a Sabbath bonus and then Saturday, Sunday, too. And... Um, uh, I don't know about this not working. I work all the time. I work on different things. We when you have kids, <laughs> the Sabbath is when they go to bed. <laughs> have a little bit a little little taste of Sabbath every every once in a while. Okay. And I'm not I'm not making fun of the scriptures. I'm just saying the labor for your living Okay, is what he was telling Israel because God, see, I think it's stamping this nation as unique among all the nations because they are the ones that belong to the creator who rests on day seven. He rested on day seven and that's the mark that marks them. They rest on day seven. And so as a nation, not, not, um, not um, uh, almost like a nation state, not just an ethnic people, that's circumcision with the Abrahamic covenant. This is the thing that marks them at the, at the Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, as as this, uh, people that belong to the creator. So do we belong to the creator? You can talk about Sabbath observance and, um, it, it just is not emphasized in the new Testament like it is in the old Testament. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and he's my Lord. And so I definitely recommend you get a day of rest. I definitely recommend you take a day of rest. And if you're struggling, you don't know what you're doing with your life, drink water, get some sleep and try to rest in the Lord. But, um, In the Ten Commandments, we talk about the stewardship of property. We talk about the stewardship of private property. The first four of the commandments, as you know, I have to do a little exposition here. First four of the Ten Commandments are directly what the individual does with God. Individuals obey these laws, not collective groups. But as the collective group of individuals do them, then the group, the people are doing them. That's how it works. And that's the foundation for Western civilization uh, legal practice, in my view. The individual makes the choice. The individual is responsible for the choice. The law assesses the individual, not how does this affect the group, but what is the individual doing? That's when you go to collective instead of individual work, um, you start seeing the evils um, that have become pervasive in our time. But anyway, individuals are to um, uh, serve no other god. They're to make no idols for themselves. They are to not worship them or serve them. Um, they are to not take the name of the Lord their God in vain. They are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall do no, not do any work, your son or your daughter, so forth. All right. That's four, and they're directly about belonging to God and honoring God. You're doing those, as it were, for God. You don't Sabbath for people. You don't... Take the Lord's name uh, in seriousness as opposed to taking him lightly. You don't do that for those others around you. That's directly you and God. See what I mean? Have no other gods before me. is not something you do toward another human. But when you get to verse 12, the, the direction changes because God has established authority. He's delegated these institutions of authority down, including parents and children. Honor God in how you treat your parents. Verse 12 is a totally different topic. It's now how you treat people for God's sake and the rest of them, the other five will be that way too. Honor your father and mother and it has a promise. Should not murder. Does that affect other people? Every time it's tried, right? Murder is the definition of the offense, a transgression of another person, another human. And it's God saying for my sake, because you belong to me, don't do this. And then the next one's like it. The destruction of a marriage. Don't commit adultery. Should not steal. Should not bear false witness against your neighbor, Should not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or the, his servant, male servant or female servant or his donkey or anything that belongs to your servant. Okay, there are two of those that kind of ring out that they're not directly touching another human. He says, don't murder, that's touching a human. Honor your father and mother, that's exactly directly how you speak, direct, uh, attend to your parents through the various phases of your life. Committing adultery, that's touching another human. But not stealing, that happens when they're not present. That's when they're away and you sneak in and steal. That's their stuff. And I think that's a little bit different. Don't bear false false witness against your neighbor. You're attacking the person, right? The person, like he did it, and then the gendarmes come and take him because he's now thrown in prison because you bore false witness, that idea. Covet your neighbor's house. That's in your own head. Paul said that's the one that killed him because everything else, I never stole anything, but I might've wanted something someone else had. So it's the physical action of stealing and then the, the mental conception that leads to stealing, coveting someone's stuff. No one stole something, right? That they, that they didn't want. They didn't go, Oh, I forced myself to take this thing. I don't even like it, but I'm going to take, I mean, you could talk about people with pathologies and and issues, but I'm just saying, generally speaking, when, when you steal it, it's because you first coveted it. You wanted it. And he's saying these are off limits. And it's interesting that these two, theft and covetousness, are about the person's property. The person's property. Well, wait a second. He says, don't covet your neighbor's house. That's his property. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant or female servant? Well, let's talk about humans as property. We're not, let's not even talk about slavery. Let's talk about people as property. Is there a sense in which you own your spouse? I hope you can understand and get out of American culture where we're so radically crazy that we don't understand the possessiveness, the legitimate possessiveness of your spouse. That's what you just said when you got married. You said, that's mine. I'm that person's, that person's mine, and we're, that's it. That's not ownership of like, putting the person as property in the sense of of diminishing their role as a human, but there is legitimate belonging, possessiveness in marriage. God establishes it. uh, For example, he says, this is how it is. And he made everything he knows. He said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You You shall have no other gods before me or make yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Of his property, those his people. I'm jealous, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, showing loving kindness to thousands of those who, keep me, who love me and keep my commandments. That idea, that attitude is what I'm talking about, that possessiveness. You're mine, I'm not sharing you with someone else. That's a legitimate expression of possessiveness between humans and there are different relationships in which there is a legit possessiveness. I'm not talking about being weird. I'm not talking about being pathologically stalker possessive. I'm talking about legitimately saying that's mine and I'm going to take care of it. That's a stewardship. And if you don't have ownership of the relationships that God has given you in an appropriate way, as they, then you're missing what Jesus is doing in John 17. He's saying, I, you gave them to me and I've given them back to you. And you can do that with everyone in your life. You can do that with all your relationships just like Jesus did. It's the stewardship of glory. But I want to point out that when, when, when God says from the mountain with burning with fire and there's this huge pillar of smoke and it looks like, an, looks like, a, an earth, looks like a volcano with earthquake and there's, there's horrible sound including trumpet sounds somehow through this voice of God. As he's saying this and the people's ears are bleeding because they're hearing the voice of God, he says, hey, the stuff, don't steal. I'm making that sacred that the other person owns that and that bond between that person and that property is, is sacrosanct, it is, it is off limits. God says, God says, now that's convenient for me. I like to have my stuff and I like to other people take my stuff and so thanks God. For some people, that's the one commandment. Don't take my stuff. And and we miss the point if we get fixated on stuff. You miss the point if you get fixated on your people, too. Our fixation is on God, and I want you to see that he establishes the concept of private property. It's a delegation. He made it. He said, you can have this. And then he gave it to them. And that's the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of the parceling of the land in Joshua. That's the story of the removal of Israel from the land because of their rebelliousness in the prophets and toward the end of the kings. shall not steal that is to violate the bond between a human being and his possession whatever it is and then jesus or sorry the 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 lord expands the lord expands i contend the pre-incarnate christ expands the language to include the um the the desiring of someone's possession including their wife including their their servants including their their physical property you don't even want it but I can't help but want it. I want it. Stop. Stop that. That's covetousness. You are told, and I'm told in Exodus 20, that we can set a watch on our desires and say, I choose not to want the other person's thing because there's a sacred thing between God and that person and their property. Now, let's, choose, let's tease that out. I didn't just say we worship property. I said we worship God, and now our property is sacred between us and God. Think about that. What just happened was the idols just all got smashed. All the property is now about how I'm dealing with God. Exodus 20 is awesome. When God said, hey, I'm watching the the deal between you and your stuff. Don't covet someone else's stuff and certainly don't steal it. Now, what's going on between you and God with property? Have you figured it out yet? Jesus was not known in his earthly ministry to have a lot of stuff. He was traveling. We don't even know of him carrying a backpack, right? In his itinerant ministry, when he sent the disciples out, we'll read pretty soon in Matthew 10, he didn't, you know, take a, don't take a bag. You don't take extra clothes. You're going to be housed where you go. You're going to be cared for by the property of others. Other people are going to use their resources and take care of you. The servant's worthy of his wages. Jesus isn't known to have a bunch of stuff. He didn't have a pickup truck and carry stuff around in it. He could have. Do you think Jesus could have had a pickup truck? Absolutely. If he could raise up stones, (laughs) children from stones, he could easily make a pickup truck. We know it would have been, well, whatever brand you think it would have been. It it, it wouldn't have been battery powered, but... uh, (laughs) Me and Mike think it probably would have been nuke powered. Um, but anyway, the, the the silly point notwithstanding, um, Jesus wasn't known to have a bunch of property, but he had something much more valuable than property. When John seventeen, when he said, "Give me glory," he said, "I've already taken everything you've given me. All these people—that's the value. It's the people, and I've given them to you. I've shown you, I've shown them to you, and shown you to them. And so, give me more glory, and I'll." Bring more glory to you. That's the reciprocation. But with Jesus, it's people, and that's what's most important. So what we talked about last time. The stewardship of people is loving them. And loving doesn't mean giving them what they want. Loving doesn't mean feeling affection for them necessarily, although it does include that in many or most cases. Love is thinking what God wants and acting on it for their sake without regard to yourself. That's that's biblical love. And Jesus exemplified this. Jesus demonstrated this. He loved them, we saw last time. He loved them to the end in John 13, 1. So the, the point I'm trying to make here by looking at Exodus 20 is that there's a sacred bond, God thinks, between you and your property. And he protects it. And when he sets up his license, he he protects that sacred bond. And it's an individual's property. It's an individual. Don't steal what belongs to the person. Don't, be, don't steal. And I'm not saying, well, if an organization owns property, you can steal that. No, you don't steal anything because there's a bond of ownership, custody between the person and the thing. Now, everything you own is on loan. I love books. I don't really like library books very much because I'm smog um, on my gold uh, hoard with my books. I like my books. And if I have a library book, understand, that's not mine. I have to give it back. I don't want to give it back. That's just a problem I've got. Y'all just pray for me, right? Um, I, don't want, I don't want to have a temporary ownership i want that book for myself unless it's not good and i get rid of it but but if it's a good book i don't want to give that up well here's the thing everything's on loan everything's a library book it's all kindling you you have the the things of this world now for your use for whatever you're supposed to be doing in this life they're for your use and it's all going away and here's the thing you and i are going away before the stuff does and then the kids are going to have to deal and go go fill the landfill all the stuff, right? That's how the, the stewardship of, of property, we have to think about it. So here's my challenge I want to kind of wind things down with. What do you own that isn't God's? What in your life do you have that's yours and so it's not his? Because think about it. Do some assessing. Do some self-analysis. When you're young and you're uh, insecure, um, nobody here at Preston City Bible Church is young and insecure. Young, yes, but not insecure. But think about those poor people that are young and insecure um, about what people think of them. Right? They haven't figured out that that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what God thinks of our choices. And we know that if we have Jesus as our Savior, He thinks uh, when he sees us, he thinks of his son. And he couldn't think more highly of us in our position. And then he has an assessment of our practice, of our choices we make from that position. But when you're young and insecure, you make your decisions because of what people will think of you. So you don't think of your friendships as stewardships before God, that I'm given this interaction, this moment, this decision, this set of interactions, I'm given this so that I can honor God with it, so that I can, in this case of the, the friend, let them know who Jesus is. No, that's not part of this friendship. We're actually friends. You're talking about messing up a good thing. I don't want to bring God into it because that's not, how, that's not the nature of our friendship. We play hacky sack together. We don't talk about Jesus together. We like, to, do, we like to, to weave baskets together. We don't like to talk about Jesus. That's not our friendship. And so you don't think of that relationship. It's easy. It's, we all struggle with it. You don't think of that relationship as part of a set of stewardships God has given you that the first things first in your life is God and that everything about you is really about him. And you've you got to make that calculation. See, everything I own belongs to the Lord. Okay, okay, Ananias. Everything you own belongs to the Lord. But what about? And that's that list of the what abouts, the friendships. And did I say that you have to become some sort of preacher to your friends and get weird with them? No, I'm saying that you have to think of this relationship in biblical terms you need to think about that person in true terms of like, let's run down the friendship thing because Jesus is talking about giving people back to the father the father gave them to him he gives them back to the father all right god gave you some people he's got people in your life and you've got friendships and you get along with each other because of personality alignments we like each other's sense of humor you know, whatever. We, you know, we, we kind of get each other, and there's this mutual admiration that develops between certain people. It happens. You can't force it. Sometimes it's, uh, it's easy. Sometimes it takes a long time. Shared experiences over time, we have this bond, right? It happens. Now, what's it for? Is it an end in itself? Is that what it's for? Because if you can separate God, your walk with God, from that, then, then you, you're blowing it in terms of stewardship. That's what I'm saying. We've got this box over here that's my buds or my, my whatever, my whatever people. A lot of, lot of young people, it's the girl or the, or the guy, the, the, the boyfriend, girlfriend. Like, I can't bring God into this. I mean, yeah, I believe what he's saying, but I mean, <sighs> I, I, maybe I got to grow spiritually or something before I can really understand. This is the challenge because if you don't front your faith in that, where you, where's that going to go? You're going, to, you're going to swap, you're going to replace God with an idol. And she may be pretty, but she's not that pretty. And so, so that's the problem. He may, be, he may be handsome, but he's not that handsome. The, the idea that there's something about me that isn't about God, as I think about it, means I've found the area that I'm afraid, I'm not trusting in God, I'm, I'm worshiping something, I'm, I'm after something that God isn't giving me. And it's a horrible thing. So let's say you're going to repent. You're like, okay, pastor, I want to try to understand what you're saying. Step out on faith here. All right. Kind of take my Indiana Jones blind leap and just kind of step out. Okay, what, what are you saying? I'm saying that the first step to deal with the relationships is what we started with today in John 17. You should stop treating these people like it doesn't matter whether they go to heaven or hell and start thinking about their eternal destiny. I said thinking about it. And then you should take it to the Father and ask Him, Father, could you please bring this person to know you through, uh, through your Son? Would you please open the door to the gospel? Start actually praying for the people that you're associated with. It never occurred to you, that's a different compartment. That's, that's my buds. Your buds are going to hell. They don't know Christ and they're headed to the lake of fire and there is no end in that resurrection to the to the second death there is no end to the torment so pray for them and then start thinking more maybe maybe you pray a couple times a day intentionally spend a month every day get up and go to bed say something to God about these people that you're concerned for and in your heart with God now my relationship with God involves these people and that's really the center. And so you're doing what Jesus did. He's asking on behalf of these people. You're interceding. And now you've worked on it. You've put some time into it. I mean, I wasn't really going to work on them. They're just, they're just my friends. Do you love them? I mean, I, I, sure. Do you love them enough to consider their eternal destiny? That's kind of the, the one approach to stewardship with these types of relationships. You have all kinds of things that God has called you to steward. steward. And I think that um, you and I are marked out to inherit a lot of things, all things with Christ. But this is the life that you and I are living right here. This is the, don't worry about the title here, but on this slide, you can see all the various delegations that God has given you for you to serve him with. You are responsible to deal with suffering that you didn't ask for, but you've got everybody's going to have that because we're all dying a little bit every day and that hurts and it hurts more over time for example your property the stuff we've been talking about your time your resources your work the people in your life your physical body that god's given you to serve him with try to serve god without your body which includes your brain right the revelation that god has given you of himself these are all sacred delegations. It's all sacred, sovereign God passed it down to you. This is what I'm giving you. What are you going to do with it? You are capitalized. And when you think about these things, you're not supposed to say, oh, I'm overwhelmed with responsibility. You're, going to, you're supposed to say, God thinks I can handle this. God thinks that with him walking by his spirit, I can manage all of these delegations. The people one is our mission. The people that we love, that God has shown us through Christ, that we love, they're the focus, they're the attention, focus for us because they go on forever. And so, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, did I ask on behalf of the world, but on, on behalf of those whom you've given me for they are yours. All things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. I've been glorified in them. This attitude about every aspect of your life, including the most important one, the people, most important understand stewardship is the other people that go on Forever. This is to take up your cross. This is to follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the model, or to build off of the model that he gave us. And uh, start where Jesus shows you. Like the ultimate illustration of this is the high priestly prayer. Start in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the example of your son, the Lord Jesus, who showed us what it is to, uh, to reciprocate with you. Father, it's easy for us to lose track of the mission because we're in this world and we see and we, and we encounter and we have various responsibilities and we've got to pay the bills and all the things that come into our lives. And when we take a step out of your word, we lose that perspective. We lose the, the sight of the mission and what you're doing with us. But um, Father, I ask that you break through in each of our hearts every single day that we have a high calling and it is a short time that we get to serve and suffer in this phase and that um, these these wonderful delegations um, are, are an opportunity to bring glory to you. Father, um, we want to take on the attitude of Jesus that everything we own is really about glorifying you, bring glory and honor to you with. That's what it's for. And we want to um, revel in that principle as we read the scriptures that talk about giving from our first fruits in Proverbs 3 so that you will uh, make our wine vats overflow. Father, it's not that we give to you so that you'll give to us. It's that we give to you because you've given to us. And we know it's your policy and desire to backfill us so that we can do some more. So help us live our lives this way and not not walk away from the word and forget what it said. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.